When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. All right, to the phone lines, and Mike's up first. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Bob. Hey, good morning, sir. Oh, happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there that celebrated today. Absolutely. Um, I was by your uh, shop uh, Thursday. Okay. And looking at your spinosad uh, soap. Right. And I was trying to remember if if I'd heard you mention that, like, you had another type of spinosad or some other type of insecticidal soap besides that one. All three. Uh, we have straight spinosad. We have straight insecticidal soap. And then they came out a couple of years ago with a ready-to-use sprayer with the uh, a little hand sprayer with the spinosad soap combination. And then this year they came out with a concentrate for folks who uh, have discovered how well it works and want to spray a bigger area. Now, like anything, even though this is totally safe and natural product, uh, spinosad is somewhat toxic to bees. So I recommend using it only in the areas where you're having a problem. But uh, spinosad is very effective against caterpillars. It's one of the few things that I've found that's fairly effective against stink bugs. So uh, it, it's just a combination of two products, but I think you call it synergistic. Uh, the two products together work better than using uh, the two halves of it separately. Okay, uh, then that's the one I ended up getting to the concentrate. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. I wasn't sure, you know, because I saw you had this other one called Safer or something like that. Well, if you were just fighting aphids, aphids, I'd probably go with Safers. Um, in some cases uh, where you don't want to use a BT product for concern of other caterpillars, where you just need an instant kill on caterpillars that you see sitting there munching on your bougainvilleas or your beans, uh, I might just uh -huh. go with straight spinosad. But for most uses and, you know, you're simply getting the benefit of two safe and effective products at the same time. Fantastic. Well, thanks again, Bob. Appreciate your, all your help. Well, it's always a pleasure having the opportunity to explain things a bit. Mike, you get out and uh, hope all the ladies in your family have a, a happy Mother's Day as well. And I'll move on to Robert. Good morning, Robert. Good morning, Bob. Hey, good morning, uh, sir. Uh, I have heard uh, several conversations uh, this weekend and previous uh, about people uh, who are a little bit intimidated by sprayers, which I think most of us are. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, just trying to keep these things running is a full-time job. But anyway, I found a way to distribute uh, live nematodes that is really simple and and, and makes the application even uh, an even application easier please share and that's to that's to take 
uh, two five-gallon buckets, like mm-hmm. a Home Depot bucket or a chlorine bucket or something, toilet yeah. tablet bucket. Fill them half full of water. Cut the sponge in half. Mm-hmm. Uh, and put one in each bucket and get it uh, emptied. You know, yeah. And when you look at that sponge, realize, of course, that the nematodes are not evenly distributed through the sponge. You'll see that little dab of goo. Make your cut kind of right in the middle of that so you got about half the goo, so to speak, on each, each side. Because if you just whack off the piece of the blue sponge without being careful where you're cutting, you might end up and still have all of them on one piece and none of them on the other piece. But, yeah, I'm with you so far. Yeah, thank you. That's uh, that's important, and I just sort of jumped right over that um, uh, and probably would have forgotten it. But anyway, uh, so anyway, you've got two two-and-a-half-gallon buckets now. Right. And with all the nematodes uh, off the sponge, and then you fill the uh, both buckets to the five gallon and mm-hmm. basically divide the yard into halves. Okay. And then, and then just take, uh, you know, a smaller container to fill your, your watering can <laughs> and right. literally just walk up and down one half, just, just kind of slinging it, if you will, yeah. just kind yeah. of out, out wide and just go back and forth until you've used up that entire five, five gallons on that half. And then you go to the other half, but it gives you a chance to kind of see how you're doing in mm-hmm. terms of distribution. And it really is a very simple way to do it. And, and the, you get some the, exercise the water, at the same time. Yeah, a little, a little bit. Yeah. I was just about to say, and, and choose a watering can that's suitable for your strength. I mean, it's not a big challenge, but, yeah. uh, if I can do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't sell yourself short. The one thing I would tell you about that is you can't take a break in the middle of it because nematodes stay in the water too long. They will drown. So you don't do one bucket and then go have a cold drink and then go back and do the other right. bucket. You need to be, pretty much do it in one continuous operation. But, hey, that's a, that's a perfect solution for the person that's not trying to do two acres. Yeah. So anyway, that's just for what it's worth, and I hope that makes it easier for some people who well, just would rather not face a hose-in sprayer or anything else. That, <laughs> I, I appreciate appreciate the suggestion. On the subject of sprayers, now they unfortunately don't make a hose-in sprayer yet, but uh, I've been experimenting for about three months now with a new line of sprayers by a company called Centurion, C-E-N-T-U-R-I. Oh, and I believe it is. Yeah, and, I remember hearing you mention it. Yeah, they they sure make a good sprayer at a better price than Gilmore and some of these others. And I've been real pleased with that sprayer. But like I say, unfortunately, they don't make a hose-in sprayer. But anybody that's out there looking for a little pump-up sprayer, anything from a half gallon to two gallons, uh, I that's the sprayer at this point that I'm saying is the best one on the market. Bob, thank you very much. Always good to talk to you, and I'll probably talk to you again soon about Levi. I will look forward to that, and uh, happy Mother's Day to Susie. I'll tell her. Thanks, Robert. Bye. Best to you. You too. Bye. All right. Let's see here. Things have shifted around a little bit. Next up is Teresa. Going by the how long people have been on hold. Teresa and then Barbara and Jeff. Uh, good morning, Teresa. Oh, good morning, Bob. Good morning. I have a question about some grass. It is St. Augustine grass under a live oak, so you're going to say, ah, that's probably why it doesn't grow there. Um, some of the runners are under the tree, and uh-huh. the rest of the yard the rest of the yard looks beautiful, but I don't know if it's a disease. I don't know if it's an insect, but I've tried 
extra organic fertilizer there. Last year I put beneficial nematodes, but I don't know what the problem is. It just doesn't grow. Well, fertilizer is not energy. Fertilizer is raw materials. Fertilizer is food, but food doesn't do a darn thing for you unless you have a stomach to digest it and give you the benefit of the food. Uh, that's kind of the way it is with uh, with grass and things like that and fertilizer. Just fertilizer doesn't help your plants unless you've got the sun's energy to allow the plants to process things. And anytime you've got a shady area, anytime you've got anything whether it's your home, whether it's a big tree, whether it's an arbor or anything else, anything that blocks the sun uh, is going to cut down on the amount of energy the grass receives. And St. Augustine is our most shade-tolerant grass, but all the fertilizer in the world isn't going to do any good at all unless you have enough sunlight. And big oak trees uh, tend to you know, just shade it out enough that the grass is much thinner, and if they get too thick, you don't get any growth at all. The two solutions are, the one that I don't like would be to have an arborist thin your trees and get more light through, in which case your grass would grow better. I think you're better off just to either plant a shade-tolerant ground cover like English ivy or Asiatic jasmine, or maybe create a little shade garden underneath that tree with uh, variegated ginger and holly fern and akubas and shrimp plant and all those things that will grow in the shade. But uh, it's just it's just a, a losing battle, uh, and it's it's not lack of fertilizer or anything else, just lack of light. And unless you can find a way to get more light to that grass, it's always going to be thin and not nearly as pretty as it is out in the sunny area. So you said English ivy, Asiatic. I mean, you started rattling off, couldn't write that down. <laughs> well, if you want ground covers, um, their Asiatic jasmine is very common because it is so successful. English ivy and Algerian ivy are two uh, other types of ground covers that grow in the shade. Um, there is another ground cover called Vinca, V-I-N-C-A. This is not the periwinkles with bright flowers. Uh, Vinca minor has lavender flowers and uh, delicate green leaves, and it will make a pretty ground cover in the shade. And um, finally, there is a a plant with a misleading name. It's called dwarf plumbago, but it's really not a plumbago at all. It's not even related to plumbago. It's just that the flowers look like plumbago. Now, it goes away in the winter months, but it comes back vigorously in the spring, and it makes a pretty little low green ground cover. So those are all things, um, uh, Asiatic jasmine, English ivy, vinca minor, Dwarf plumbago, those are all ground covers that would be much happier underneath that big oak tree than uh, than your grass will. It's interesting that in the backyard there's four um, oak trees and the grass grows just fine under those. Well, the canopies may be, may be higher if you had a Actually, light. The canopies higher in the, in the front yard, so that's kind of strange. Well, and there's multiple. I don't know how that happens. Well, it, if you could get out there with a light meter, you could get a better idea of, and of course, you know, it may be that the ones in the backyard get that bright shade for eight hours, the ones in front only for four hours. They're just, I've seen it 10,000 times if I've seen it once, but um, there are other possibilities. Sometimes the soil is thinner there and you'd have to water more often, but I tell you, 99 out of 100 times, it's a light issue. But uh, hey, I didn't hear you say anything about plants and shade grass. 
<laughs> I haven't tried that, but I know you're going to talk about ground covers, but I'm not. you're always talking about shade grass, too. As well, opposed to and, and St. Augustine is our most shade-tolerant grass. You're totally wasting your time to try to grow Bermuda or Soysia or any of those grasses. But uh, uh, if you want something that looks more like grass, you could plant dwarf monkey grass. It's dark green, looks like grass. It's a little bit slow to grow and spread. But uh, it's a beautiful ground cover in the shade. It just uh, takes a while to fill in. What do you call it? Dwarf monkey grass. Oh, okay. <laughs> Properly, it's called Ophiopogon, but everybody knows it is monkey grass. The taller monkey grass would be fine if you want a ground cover that's a foot tall. But if you want something that's only two or three feet tall, uh, I'm sorry, two or three inches tall, the dwarf monkey grass would be still another ground cover you could uh, consider, Teresa. And here I thought it was going to be a disease or no. an insect, and I tried nematodes and all kind of things. Thinking maybe it was. <laughs> I I wish it were that easy because those are problems we could fix. This is uh, this is a problem that as long as you have that beautiful oak tree, you're going to have the problem. So not quite that easy, but at least you're not out there spraying or you know sprinkling stuff. Well, anything as long as I want to try something else, I think I'd be happy just trying anything else. Whatever I tried didn't work, so this is great. Well, I appreciate it, and I hope you have a wonderful Mother's Day. Well, thank you very much. My pleasure. Bye. All right. Now it's Barbara, Jeff, and Sandy and Phyllis, and we get started with Barbara. Good morning, Barbara. Hi. Good morning. Um, I have a. I have a. Good morning. I have a Chinese tallow tree that my neighbor gave me. Okay. And um, it's it's uh, God, it's done. You know, it's it's small, but it's done well for three years, and mm-hmm. then you know, it didn't get watered enough this past summer, I guess. Right. And the I thought it was dead. Um, it was only like probably four feet, three, four feet high. So I thought, okay, well, it's gone. But um, but the now the bottom of it are shooting up all these little, you know, these new little yeah. leaves. Right. You know? So should I should I just pull it out of the ground, or would that take? Would it turn into a new tree? Well, it uh, it can turn into a new tree. Um, if you are not going to be able to provide water for it in the future, then it's not a good tree for you because Chinese tallow, and my old friend Alton Grimm taught me that no, no plant is perfect. Every one of them has some good points and some bad points. Uh, the good points about Chinese tallow, it's fast growing. It does provide some food for the birds. It probably gives right. us better foliage color in the fall uh, than almost any tree other than the red oak out there. The Chinese tallow has an absolutely gorgeous red to yellow fall color to it. Right. So those are good points. Bad points are but there, that but it... there are a whole, whole bunch of sprouts coming up. So well, do I just, like, let them go or clip them off? You're going to clip off all except the strongest one. Okay. And But the bad points that are... May, that may actually turn back into a tree. Yes, it will turn back into a tree. Get it, you know, get okay. one coming from not off the roots, but right at the base of it. Now, some people don't like them because I wouldn't recommend them out in the country because those seeds can get spread around. They can become a little bit invasive. And, oh, my former mother-in-law had one in her yard and like every time there was a wind you're out raking up these little twigs because it's forever dropping just little little dead twigs that's just the way it grows i have a couple of them uh growing along my creek that are absolutely beautiful but same way i pick up limbs out of them fairly regularly so if you like the tree if you like the fall color by all means uh one of those little you you let it we call it a central leader or a trunk 
cut away all except the strongest one, keep it watered, okay. and it will grow back into like, a tree, but it's not the perfect should I cut tree. It away? Should I cut it away now or wait? Yes, yes. Don't let the tree waste its time putting energy into things that you're going to be cutting off eventually. I would uh, cut away all except the one. You might even think about putting a little cage, like a tomato cage or something around it, so it doesn't actually get broken off or mowed over. But uh, well, what, about, what about the original trunk? If the original trunk is not sprouted by now, it's probably not going to. Okay. Okay. All right. I will do it. Thank you. Okay. And once again, happy Mother's Day. Jeff is up next. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning, Bob. Great show again. Well, thank you, uh, sir. I got a, a bunch of cut ants. Use spinosad as a mound drench, and uh, uh, also the orange oil and uh, molasses mound drench. And um, I heard you talk one time about using sulfur. Yep. It's If they are truly cut ants, and uh, you probably know what you're looking at, um, some people confuse the red harvester ant with the cut ant, which uh, is that black ant that just strips the leaves off everything. Harvester ants go more for dead material and grain and things. But, um, right. The, no, this is stripping one of my trees, and yeah. it's, it, it's got a, a line probably – uh, of ants, probably, I would say, 200 uh, feet. Maybe. Okay. Well, here's here's the deal, and, and here's the information you need to understand what you're trying to accomplish, and that is the ants don't actually eat the leaves. They're carrying those pieces of leaves down, putting them in that underground burrow, and the ant is actually living, eating a fungus that grows on the leaves. So if you know where the mound is, you go out and uh, you get what's called wettable sulfur. It'll be called 50W, which stands for 50% wettable. And you spread maybe five pounds of sulfur, just sprinkle it all around over the top. And it may be six feet across um, where you see this mound that will have multiple entrances coming out. As it either gets watered or gets rain, it carries the um, carries the sulfur down into the chamber into the colony underneath and sulfur is a natural fungicide it kills off the fungus that the ants are eating and then the colony dies out uh may take a little time but it is at least 80 percent of the time it's the most effective way i have found to um you know to totally kill out the colony now here's what i want you to do in the meantime and that is go to a good nursery, or I guess you could probably get it online. You're looking for a product called Tanglefoot. comes in what looks like a little cottage cheese container. And this is the thickest, stickiest stuff. I mean, it makes axle grease look like hand lotion. But what you do is, with your tree that they are stripping, wrap either a piece of aluminum foil or a piece of uh, plastic wrap of some sort around it because you don't want to put your tangle foot directly on the bark. It can cause some deformities in the bark. But you wrap that trunk with uh, with foil or plastic or something and then take like a tongue depressor or something like that and just smear about a two-inch wide band of tangle foot all the way around the trunk and the ants cannot cross it. If you just make a little narrow band, they'll just throw one of their buddies on top of it and walk across his back to get up and steal the leaves. But if you make it about a two-inch wide band, 
Uh, the ants simply cannot get across it, and they will not be able to take the leaves off your tree. That's a good temporary solution. With a tree, it works. With a rose bush, not so well. With begonias, not so well. But a tree is pretty easy to protect. So I get some tangled foot while I'm uh, waiting for the sulfur to take the colony out. Got you. And why didn't the, uh, isn't that the idea of the molasses? Isn't that molasses supposed to kill the fungus also? No, molasses stimulates all sorts of beneficial bacteria. And with fire ants and things like that, um, it stimulates bacteria that kill the ants. But in this case, um, they don't, they're not as susceptible to that kind of bacterial infection. And it's a lot harder to uh, really get it spread adequately through there. They, they just build a totally different kind of mound or chamber than the fire ant does. That's a great way to kill fire ants, great way to kill carpenter ants. Uh, but there are, you know, thousands of kinds of ants and out the there. the spinosad doesn't really affect them. I mean, I've, I've made them move them out. Yeah. That's it. Well, spinosad, if you get it on them, the spinosad's going to kill 1,000 ants. Problem is there are 2,000 ants out there. Right. It's just All if right. you could get well, spinosad. Yeah, if you get spinosad on every one of them. Spinosad is a very good ant killer, but for every ant you see, there are 10 more of them hiding underground. And uh, it's just, you know, it is asking one company of soldiers to take out a whole battalion of the enemy and just not going to work that way even if they're Marines. Any idea on the wettable sulfur? Where would I get it? Any any hardware store and probably any nursery. Okay. All right. Appreciate the information. Thank you, sir. Always a pleasure, Jeff. Appreciate the call. Uh, let's go ahead and talk to Sandy. Good morning, Sandy. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. How are you this morning? Uh, it's a beautiful day. It is a gorgeous day out there. We deserve it. I have been given for Mother's Day some beautiful bulbs that are called Christmas caladiums. Okay. Tell me how to plant them. Okay. It's just now time. It's actually varieties probably called White Christmas, and they're a beautiful white leaf with bright red veins, and they're they're just absolutely gorgeous. When do they you, grow in the shade? Yes, they do. They are strictly oh. they're what we call a fancy leaf caladium, so they'll take shade or morning sun. You do not want to plant them in the hot sun, but shade or morning sun is fine. You oh. want to plant the bulbs about three-quarters to an inch deep. Now, is that below my mulch or below the dirt? Pull the mulch back and leave the mulch pulled back until the bulbs, until they've sprouted and are up and growing. Pull the mulch back and then about three-quarters inch. The top of the bulb should be about three-quarters inch down in the dirt proper. Okay, and what... Which end goes in the bottom? <laughs> okay. The, your caladium bulb is going to be more of a flat bulb than a round bulb. Yeah. And you will normally see like little projections sticking up from one side or the other. And the other side's going to be relatively smooth, even though it may be kind of gnarly looking, but it'll be fairly smooth. Whereas right. the one side, I always tell people, if you can't tell which is top or bottom, plant it on its side and it <laughs> will come up <laughs> better than planting it upside down. But with just a little study, I think you'll be able to tell which is the upside. And, um, you know, like I say, should be about three quarters of an inch of dirt over the top of that. I like sprinkling a little fertilizer and any of the good fertilizer products, Medina, Mushroom, Nature's Creation, Espoma, any of those dry fertilizers, just sprinkle it out and kind of work a little bit in. After your bulbs are up or growing, 
you know, a liquid fertilizer every two or three weeks. The, the thing about caladiums, White Christmas uh-huh. or any of the other good varieties, is left to their own devices, they'll be pretty all summer, and they'll start fading out about late August or September. Okay. If you do your part by feeding them, they will just keep getting bigger and fuller and prettier, and they will be gorgeous the day we have that first hard freeze and they freeze back in the fall so oh wonderful yeah it's just you can't just plant them and ignore them if you do that to be pretty for the summer if you will feed them like you do your other plants they'll be pretty for about an additional three months all right and again you told me how many inches deep to go in the dirt about three quarters of an inch about about the the whole thing yes cover the whole thing about as big as the last joint on your index finger that's about how deep down you want them to be Oh, well, now you know what I'm doing today. Thank you. (laughs) Well, but it'll be a happy Mother's Day project. And keep them moist, but don't drown them. Water them thoroughly, but don't water again until the surface of that soil is good and dry. If you keep them too wet, uh, they won't do well. So water thoroughly when you water, but then let them get moderately dry. Once they're sprouted and growing, um, you're, you're all set and off to a good start. Well, then, if we're going to start getting thunderstorms again on Tuesday... Should I wait? No. I the the weathermen are into this pattern of using their models and they're every time there's the slightest chance of rain, I think we're gonna see I think we're gonna hear there's a chance of rain every week for the next ten weeks. So I would go ahead and plant them and take your chances. The the chance of having it stay soggy wet um for an extended period rarely happens in south texas as we get closer to summer if you're in houston yeah i'd tell you give you another piece of advice and i'd tell you to move but (laughs) here in this area your caladium should do beautifully for you sandy thank you so much hey it's my pleasure goodbye all right back to gardening on a beautiful mother's day morning and uh, uh another happy mother's day to one of our ladies good morning phyllis Yes, good morning. Uh, I'm looking for a eucalyptus. Do you know where I could find some? I know we have them at Shades of Green. I suspect they have them at uh, probably probably at Fanix, probably at Rainbow Gardens. I don't think you're likely to find it in the grocery store, but most good nurseries should have access to them. Now, realize there are several hundred different kinds of eucalyptus. The kind we have and the one that's most commonly grown is the one they call silver dollar that has a kind of roundish leaf with a stem that goes right through the middle of it. Um, it's not something you're going to plant in your yard. If you lived in Houston, maybe so, but, uh, it really doesn't like our soil. So you can grow it in a pot, you can grow it in a hanging basket, but, um, once half day sun, uh, it's fun plant to grow in highly aromatic as you almost certainly know, but, uh, yeah, they're available there. I think we've got them in four inch pots and gallon containers. I most, most imagine most other nurseries are the same. Oh, Okay. Yeah, because I have heard that if you hang uh, eucalyptus in your shower, then it helps with congestion and and coughing and all sorts of things. Well, you know, they they put it in all these rubs you put on your chest and all these uh, air fresheners and things like that. I think it depends on the individual, but it's certainly not going to hurt you. Now, 
I will tell you, and you might check around, if you can find just cut eucalyptus, it's going to be, growing your own is going to be a challenge to have enough mm-hmm. of it. But uh, call Pat down at Travis Wholesale Florist sometime and ask him if he's got the cut branches. Might save you a lot of time and trouble. I mean, I'd love to sell you a eucalyptus plant. It's kind of fun. But if you're really yeah. going after it for uh uh, medicinal purposes, uh, you might find it easier to buy the cut product. I'd also suggest, now they're closed today, but uh, um, these two health stores in San Antonio called Rhonda's Nature's Way, Rhonda and her family know more about this stuff than anybody I've ever known in my life. You might call Rhonda and ask her if she has it like in an aerosol form or a little spray bottle or something like that that would accomplish uh, the same thing with a lot less trouble. I, I love eucalyptus. I And uh, uh, if you go to California, you won't see, well, you see this particular kind growing as a shrub, but they have other forms of the eucalyptus that make a tree 150 feet tall. So it's a really, really interesting plant, and I'd encourage you to grow it. But uh, if you're looking for something to help with congestion, there may be a little bit easier ways to get your eucalyptus oil. Yeah. Do you know of any place in New Brampos? Um, I don't know New Braunfels as well. If you've got a health food store up there, you might, uh, give them a call and see, um, okay. that, that would be your best bet to find the oil, but, and you can check the plant house up there. I'm not sure if Weston has eucalyptus, but he probably would. But, uh, when you come into San Antonio sometime, I know you'll find it. Like I say, if you're looking for the big long branches of it, a lot of florists use it in making arrangements and things. That's why you'll you'll find it somewhere like Travis Wholesale, and they sell to the public. They're not just strictly to the trade. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, thank you very much. And good luck with that. It's fun stuff. And happy Mother's okay. Day. Thank you. Yeah. It's uh, it's actually a fairly good mosquito repellent too. Uh, we have a we like a product called Murphy's Natural. That's a mixture of uh, lemon oil and eucalyptus, and it's a very effective anti mosquito spray. And of course, it's free of DEET and all the all the bad stuff. Uh, let's get the phone lines. It's uh, James, Rosemary, and uh, Chris, and. <laughs> that other line's already glaring in. So uh, first up is James. Good morning, James. How you doing, Bob? I'm great, sir. How about yourself? I'm doing okay. Beautiful day. You hear me okay? I hear you perfectly. Okay, I got your speakerphone. I heard you earlier talking to someone about uh, some mosquitoes. Right. I-, I talked to you yesterday, but I have a few more questions. I'll try to make it quick. Okay. Uh, you, you you told me that <laughs> crate myrtle. <laughs> I got that root exposed now. Okay, that has nothing to do with mosquitoes, but it, uh, no, but but I have a lift here. Okay, um, okay, you've got the roots exposed. To expose that root on the yeah. crape myrtle. Uh huh. And I got that done. Good. The other about the I got lemongrass. I've been told that that's a mosquito repellent. It is, but it's not so strong. You know, you can't just put one pot of lemongrass on your patio and think you're not going to have any mosquitoes. But, uh, oh, mos- yeah, it's lemongrass oil is uh, very good at mosquito repellent. Lemongrass, of course, is used in a lot of Asian cooking. A lot of Thai food has a lot of lemongrass in it. So there are lots of reasons to grow lemongrass. And if you have enough of it, yeah, it's going to have some mosquito repelling effect. No, well, I got about six or seven of them planted around in my, in my yard. So yeah. maybe it'll help a little bit. Hope so. The other question is, I made the mistake of uh, telling my neighbor that I have uh, blackberries, and 
She's been over there picking up a couple bowls of them, and I'm wondering <laughs> if they reproduce. Is that a dumb question? Or Well, no, sir. It's not a dumb question at all. But blackberries, they physiologically, they decide sometime in the winter how many blooms they're going to produce, and they're not going to go on producing all summer. Basically, they flower and produce berries for well, they flower for two or three weeks, and then the berries may ripen over three or four weeks' time. But uh, the spring season, late spring, is the only time early summer that you're going to get berries from your blackberries. So uh, don't share them all. Don't let them all get away, because once you've gotten through picking over the next week or two, you're going to wait till next year for the next crop. Oh, okay, sir. Okay. Now, here's well, one other for, thing. I'm having a hard time getting trumpet vines going. Oh, man, maybe that's a good thing because most people are trying to kill them out. Trumpet vine wants a lot of sun. It wants a lot of water to get established. I would recommend planting it in a bed that is uh, contained where it can't escape because it's worse than bamboo about putting underground runners out and coming up all over the yard. But uh, um, get the basic old... uh, uh, you know, orange form planted where it gets plenty of sun, water it regularly to get it started, and then you'll spend the next 10 years trying to get rid of it. I am having a hard time getting them started by the seed. No, they don't grow well from seed. You need to take some cuttings or you need to find somebody selling them and buy a little plant. Very hard to get the seed started. You're uh, cuttings root pretty easily if you know anybody that has a vine. In fact, anybody that has it probably has suckers coming up around their yard, and they would welcome you to dig up some of these little plants that are coming up where they don't want them. But trumpet vine's oh, not okay. a not a good plant to plant from seed. Because <laughs> I've been trying to get them started with seed, and I just no. can't get them going. No, that's not going to work. Okay, well, thank you very much, Bob, hey, and have a good day. You do the same, James. Thank you, sir. Uh, Rosemary is next. Good morning. Hi, good morning, Bob. I have one question. I um, am wanting to start some new uh, cuttings or new plants of my bay laurel. Okay. And I'm wondering if you could tell me the best way to go about that, whether the new growth on top or try to get some from the bottom that's trying to spread out. Well, you trim down. You want to get the you want to get the mature wood. You it doesn't matter what part of the plant it comes from, but you don't want that real soft, succulent new growth. You want it to be fairly firm, fairly hard, and then it doesn't okay. really matter where you take it from the plant. Now, bay laurel is uh, something of a challenge to get to root. Even the best growers out there, probably only one out of three cuttings root. So uh, take a bunch of cuttings, uh, root them in perlite, the white volcanic material, mm-hmm. Uh, Keep them moist, keep them bright, but no direct sun, and at least some of them will root for you. Now, let me tell you an easier way if you have a big bay laurel plant. Um, Have you ever heard of what they call an air layer? This is where you go out on an existing stem of your bay laurel. You gouge a little piece of bark off the side of the trunk. You don't cut all the way through, but you just peel a little maybe two-inch long area. You cut some of the bark off of that. Then you take a handful, uh, and literally just a handful of moist sphagnum moss, the same kind of long-fibered sphagnum we use to to line hanging baskets. You wrap that around this little cut that you made on the side of the limb, and then you wrap that whole thing up with either uh, plastic wrap or aluminum foil. And the 
plant starts putting roots, the bay laurel starts putting roots down into that wad of sphagnum moss, after about six weeks, you can peel it back, be sure it's got some roots started, and then you just snip it off, peel the foil or the plastic off, and plant it up. It's sort of a way that you root your cutting before you ever take it off of the mother plant. Yes. So yes, I'm going to try both of those. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and you should be. You know, bay laurel makes a big plant. If you've got a good-sized plant, you'll have be able to take all the cuttings you like and put half a dozen air layers on there, and uh, both of them will be successful for you. It's just on the cuttings. Even the pros uh, don't get a real high percentage of rooting, so be a little patient with it. Oh, well, thank you so much for that air layer suggestion. Thank yeah. you so much, Bob. You're sure welcome. Happy Mother's Day. All right, it's going to be Chris and Jerry and Cosette and one open line. Grab it if you like while I say good morning, Chris. Good morning. Good morning. Um, how are you doing? I'm great. Hope you're doing as well this Mother's Day morning. Doing good. It's a beautiful morning. Yes, it great is. Mother's Day. Okay, so uh, first question, how to store onions? Store onions somewhere cool and dry. Um, I happen to store them in my laundry room, which is out of my barn, because they are do have a little odor to them, shall we say, but they mm-hmm. don't need refrigeration. You just don't want to put them out in a storage shed where it's 110 degrees in the summer. If it's, if it's room temperature or close to it, uh, your onions will do fine. Now, the high-sugar onions, like the Sweet 100s, um, or they call them Texas Super Sweets, uh, 1015s, lots of different names. They do not keep as long as the other varieties do, but so uh, enjoy those first. But just anywhere cool and dry, and have them spread out one layer thick. I use stackable plastic trays so that I can, you know, not take up a whole lot of floor space, but you can't, like, put them in a bucket or in a bin or anything like that. They've got to be spread out just one layer thick so they have good air circulation around them. Okay, and that goes for the red onions also? The red onions will last much longer. The yellow onions will last much longer. If they are not the super sweets, the white onions will last much longer. You can keep those things stored for 8 to 10 months without any problem. It's just my experience with the uh, uh, Sweet 100, not Sweet 100s, but the uh, 1019s, the Texas Super Sweets, they just they start deteriorating after 2 to 3 months. So they store for a while, but uh, don't keep as long. Okay. All right, how about beets? Can you store those, or you need to cook them right away? You need uh, you need to use them. Now, beets can be pickled and stored for a long period of time, okay. and uh, it's pretty easy to do. If you ever get into canning and pickling, uh, you need to send off for a book. The University of Georgia is called So Easy to Preserve. I think it's around 12 or 15 bucks. It's a uh, uh, kind of a plastic spiral bound about 500 pages of everything you need to know about virtually anything you want to preserve whether it's from the store or out of your garden but uh, beets keep fresh for a few days but you can keep them for a couple of years if you uh, go ahead and pickle them and who writes the book again it's uh the extension service at the i believe it's the university of georgia google the book name it is so easy to preserve I don't okay. think it's available right. in any uh, of the bookstores, but uh, gosh, I, it's just my Bible when it comes to knowing how to freeze, okay. to can, to pickle. It's just, and it's got a lot of good recipes in there too. It, it's a book; it won't cost you much money. It makes a great Christmas gift or Mother's Day gift or any kind of gift if you have friends that enjoy doing that sort of thing. All right, cool. Um, okay, and uh, over Easter there was tulips. Yes, you know. So how do you store the bulbs? Well, 
if you the thing about a bulb, a bulb uses up eighty percent of at least its stored energy when it comes up in flowers. You have mm-hmm. to leave those bulbs growing for two or three or four months after they finish flowering because this is the time the bulb stores the energy back into the bulb so they can grow and flower again. Um, If they just dry out after they flowered, you're wasting your time to try to store them. If If you keep them happy, if you keep them growing, if you keep them good for six or eight weeks or ten weeks afterwards, then what you can do is the foliage dies down, uh, just dig the bulbs, store them about like you do your onions. Just keep them cool okay. and dry, and uh, you can replant them again in the fall. But if they don't have that couple of months of good growing after they flowered, you're kind of wasting your time. All right. Yeah, I'm way past that. So. Okay. They're cheap. <laughs> if you like you like tulips, uh, they're, they don't give you a lot of bang for the buck, but there's nothing quite like a tulip. So just get some fresh yeah. bulbs next year. All right. I appreciate it. Thank you. Always a pleasure, Chris. Thanks for the call.